I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. What I wanted to talk about tonight was integrating practice into daily life. As we have been getting to know each other a bit tonight, there have been conversations about feeling angry at the way God is treating us, that cancers are coming back and the world is out of control and children are dying and there is a, a popular saying right now that an emotion only lasts for 12 or 15 seconds or something. I can't remember the number. The, actually, what people are trying to say is that cortisol is only in your bloodstream for a very short amount of time. So that if you get angry, and there's the cortisol comes and it goes. But if anger comes and you hold on to it, and you're angry, and you get into the story of what you're angry about, and you get fixated on why you're angry, you're asking the question why instead of what, then it's very easy to get in a cycle of negative thoughts about anger, say, or about fear, or what any difficult emotion, actually. In Vajrayana Buddhism, as opposed to Difficult emotions are really treasured. They are the fuel for awakening. And when somebody comes to the teacher and has a lot of anger or a lot of lust or a lot of juice, 
the teacher says, oh, good, this is somebody who can really make some progress. When we come to this tantric stage, it's really only after really working with a lot of mindfulness and a lot of compassion. If you are really mindful of what it feels like to be angry, if you're holding on to it, there is suffering involved. Maybe this is more personal than you would like to hear, but in my own life, if I don't meditate a bunch or do something really, really creative or have orgasms, I get angry. Because it's the same energy. It's the same energy. And anger is really very closely related to cutting through Vajra-like discriminating wisdom. The wisdom that, that distinguishes between ignorance and true wisdom. When you were each talking earlier about uh, sort of being upset with God or being angry, it re really made me think of taking refuge. And we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So taking refuge in the Buddha is freedom is possible. Freedom does exist. Hypothetically, it's not that far away. It's something that we can really open to moment to moment. The Dharma is something that works. The Sangha is the support for helping it to work. When there's enough mindfulness, then we begin to see the difference between being lost in anger. What does that feel like in your body? And even though it is comforting to blame God or the medical community or bad luck or whatever it is, it's easier to project outward and, and say, this is why I'm feeling this. In the short term, it will help you avoid feeling that abyss that is their true nature, if you will. So that there's always this tension going on between, on one hand, the fixated, closed stance of the ego structure, and on the other hand, the open, completely groundless nature of who we actually are. And it is possible in the short term to keep avoiding by distraction, by getting angry, by binging on Netflix, by doing whatever distracting activity you would like to do, to not feel that deep underlying tension, which is fundamentally fear of death. Can you use that same energy that is anger to plunge into the investigation of what does it feel like when I get lost in anger? What does it feel like when I am being reactive in a moment-to-moment -moment way? The, the qualities of the open, compassionate heart, one of them is boundlessness, one of them is connectedness, one of them is warmth. Is the heart warm? Is it connected? Is it spacious? This isn't theoretical stuff. This is not rocket science. It's, it's something that we can all investigate, that we can all really, really do as a practice in our daily life. I got an email today from a, an old, old friend of mine. I didn't have any body to the email, just the subject. And he said, we're almost done with that asshole, which I'm pretty sure he's referring to the fact that impeachment proceedings might be starting. Right? And I thought, <laughs> well, I was thinking how just even having that 
relationship with something, the, the, the anger involved in that, mm -hmm. and the collective anger that we have as, as a society mm -hmm. is perpetuating mm -hmm. something. I, of a certain age, that when I was in graduate school, there was a war in Vietnam, and I was a part of a very, very large group of people who thought that the police were pigs, and they were chasing me down the street and shooting tear gas at me, and it really eventually became clear to me that the fact that I was vilifying or objectifying the other side created the reaction that happened uh, a generation later, that, it became, that a very conservative reaction happens. Is it possible to realize that there are wars and there is cancer and there's plenty to be angry about, but is it possible to use the anger as an inspiration, not that something we get lost in? And I've been facilitating groups much like this one for uh, some of them for longer than 10 years. As part of the groups, we do a check-in where people talk about what's been happening in their life during the last week. And what I've noticed is that again and again, people say, I had this difficult thing happen, and I really got lost in it. And then an hour later or a day later, I remember this practice that we had talked about that would have really helped me not get lost, but I forgot to use the practice because the emotion was so strong. I'm not interested in philosophy. I'm interested in how practical can we be in finding ways to integrate practice into anger and illness and political resistance and grief and all the different things that we've been talking about here tonight. There was a recent survey that was reported in the Harvard Business Review of all places and that 95% of people reported that they felt they were self-aware, whatever that means. It wasn't really quite clear what that meant. But when they asked people questions about their lives, the researchers determined that 10 to 15% of the people they would say were self-aware. Right? <laughs> so, so I would suggest that that's maybe true for all of us, that we think we're fairly self-aware. But how much of the time are we really being mindful? Now, everybody is aware all of the time. Unless you're comatose or you're dead, you're aware. You might be agitated, you might be tired, you might be drunk, you might be restless, you might be happy, you might be sad, but all you can do is be aware of what's happening in that moment. You might be trying to be with your breath and you're distracted and being with something else, but you're aware of that something else. Mindfulness and awareness are really two different things. Mindfulness is centered awareness. It's balanced, centered awareness. So tonight I would just like to very briefly talk about what are some of the obstacles to integrating practice into daily life? And what are the, some of the techniques we can use to do that? We often get lost in the question, why? Why did my cancer come back? Why did my dear friend die? Why is this political mess happening right now? And why is almost always a question that leads to suffering, that leads to negative thought forms or getting lost in the dualistic mind? A much more interesting question is what? What is going on now? And an even more interesting question is, what is my relationship 
with what it is that is going on now. So why is being lost in the mind? What is having mindfulness of what is going on? And then the relationship, the compassionate, loving, grateful relationship with what it is that's going on now is the path beyond suffering. But it is so hard to let go of that why question because we have to then take responsibility for what we're feeling. It's not out there that's causing the suffering. Very often, in terms of obstacles to integrating practice, very often we're lost in rather superficial emotions and somatic experiences as a way of not feeling the deeper thing that's going on. I would suggest that there's a way to work with that obstacle that's really very powerful medicine, which is what are the sensations in the body that are underneath just the moment-to-moment stuff? Is there some dread? Is there some fear? Is there there's something that's going on? Can you, can you be with that? Can you stick with that? Or even if you can't be with that, can you be with your resistance to feeling that? That is where deep healing will begin to arise. Not in reacting to the moment-to-moment stuff, but the reactions are coming out of something underneath there almost all the time that we don't want to feel. Maybe this group, maybe this sangha will be a place where we can begin to settle down enough, let the mind, heart, mind quiet enough that we can begin to be honest about these deeper sensations. We're feeling angry, but I would, I would almost guarantee that under the anger is there's a deep sadness. And under that sadness is a deep fear. And it's so hard to drop down and be with that fear. And yet, if we stay on the surface and just, I'm angry about this, life is difficult, I'm getting spam calls, and the government is crazy, and all these things are happening, the healing also then stays on the surface. So it's just like when we do Tonglen practice, that it's to the depth that you're willing to feel the suffering of the other person or your own person that determines how much healing is going to happen in in doing the practice. We often feel that practice is a duty. I need to practice because I want to get well. I want to practice because I'm tired of being unhappy. And is it possible to instead practice because there's a sense of gratefulness that the Dharma even exists? As long as you're practicing because you're trying to get rid of something, there's a, a sense of burden about practice that eventually is going to become so tiresome that we're almost certainly going to fall off the cushion, as someone once said. Another obstacle is that we end up feeling like we're really an expert. We, we know about practice. We're really good at it. Suzuki Roshi's book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he says, in the mind of a beginner, there are many possibilities. In the mind of an expert, there are few. Is it possible to come to each sitting, even each breath, with the mind of a beginner? That takes a great deal of surrender. It takes a great deal of letting go of armoring and being vulnerable. Being vulnerable. Another thing that I really feel is an obstacle is that almost everybody in the West has a pretty good dose of restlessness. There's some underlying sense of anxiety 
that keeps us moving, that keeps us talking and fixing and improving and trying to figure things out and trying to understand. And is it possible, and we even just assume that that's the human condition. And is it possible to begin to be with that underlying anxiety? It could also be looked at from another slightly different angle as underlying uh, subtle grief that is coloring all of our experience. So there's this subtle thing that's just under the surface, and it's so prevalent we don't even feel it. And in a way, that's much harder than dealing with difficult emotion, a uh, really strong emotion that we were talking about before that we could see as part of the tantric path of using great anger or great sadness as something for awakening. The, the Tibetans have a word called shenpa, which you may have heard of, which is the, the sticky or the hooked quality in the mind where you, you grab onto something. And if we use the example of anger, it's, it's so interesting to begin to be aware of when we're caught in Shenpa and when we have an open mind, an open heart mind. There is a feeling in Shenpa, it, it may not be extreme, but there's a sense of we're not really connected with our heart, we're not connected with other people, we're maybe avoiding the groundlessness of our true nature. But there's a, there's a quality of deadness about it. There's a quality of uh, uncomfortableness, of unsatisfactoriness, of dukkha. Okay, so I think it's much more interesting maybe then to talk about what are some of the, the techniques for going beyond those obstacles. And one of the ones I really like is a lot of short meditations. Like I live in a, a two-story house. There's the office and the bedroom upstairs. There's the kitchen and the dining room downstairs. I go up and down those stairs many times a day. Am I busy getting to the bottom or the top of the stairs? What am I going to do when I get there? Or am I able to use going up or down the stairs as just 20 seconds of practice of saying my mantra or uh, feeling presence, whatever it might happen to be? When we're meditating, say you're focusing on your breath, you're being mindful of your breath, typically we'll do something like putting 90% of attention on our breath and maybe 10% on the rest of the environment. Uh, you're feeling something in your knee, you're with your mind, but basically you're trying to be with the breath. One can change that percentage, 50% of attention on your breath, 50% on your environment right now. 50% you can be listening to what I'm saying. The other 50% you're practicing. You're using practice as a touchstone. You're not pushing the environment away, but you're watching your abdomen rising and falling, or you're feeling some quiet sense of devotion in the background, or whatever it might happen to be. And then we can even go to the other extreme, where 90% of your attention is in the world, in the environment. And 10% is your practicing. But there's enough attention on your breath or what's going on in there, so you're not really getting completely lost, lost or drowning in worldly experience. Mm -hmm. To me, one of the best ways to do this is the practice of being centered, dropping into the lower belly, the hara, doing 
centered breathing. We've talked about that uh, in earlier sessions. One of the things I do is like I'm getting in the car, I'm going up and down the stairs. I either go into my heart or I go into my belly and just try to get really centered. Sometimes just resting in non-duality, that's great. But in at times of great activity, a busyness, phones ringing, stuff coming and going, I find being centered is really one of the main things to do. Another technique for integrating practice into daily life is cultivating emotional granularity. And by that I mean most people, if you say, how do you feel? There are about a half a dozen responses. I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm angry, I'm scared, I'm tired. But, and particularly people who have an addictive personality, they have a hard time really identifying more than a few emotions. So that in some of the 12-step programs, they give people sheets of hundreds and hundreds of emotions and ask people to try to distinguish. You say you're happy, but what does that really mean? Here's a list of 20 kinds of happiness, blissful and excited, and I don't know what they all are, of course, but that we're not just in this vague sort of way with what's going on, but we're really in a much more intimate relationship somatically and energetically and emotionally with what it is that's going on. Right effort, which I mentioned before, beginning to notice how when we're trying to practice, often we get caught in, in trying, trying, trying to do something rather than a quality of surrender. Right effort is learning to find a balance between tension and relaxation right tension, right relaxation. It's not complete tension, but it's not complete relaxation. If you're completely relaxed, probably not much is going to happen. So, I mean, even stress. Stress is very useful, but not too much stress, not getting caught in stress. We're working with finding that balance. One of the main ways of integrating practice into daily life is self-compassion or kindness. After we're mindful of something, mindfulness isn't enough. I mean, it is enough in some ways, but at the same time, in an act of life, just trying to be mindful, I find really difficult if I don't bring the heart into the equation, if I don't soften my relationship with all this activity and begin to notice the lack of heart connection with self, with God, with other and really letting that sense of connectedness be my central focus. Sometimes this, there's this somatic way of integrating, of being grounded and centered. So sometimes it's just being mindful of the breath or whatever. But a lot of it is, is the heart open. And if we can do that enough, then we can finally come to the tantric stage of, can we use strong emotion? Can we use all of this stuff all of the energy, all of the activity as fuel for awakening. That instead of having to slowly transform things through mindfulness, slowly transform things through mindfulness plus compassion, just instantaneously transmute anger into wisdom. Just that quickly, just in one moment. Even the anger is one of the faces of God. Everything is the face of God. The beloved can only be everything. It can't be just some of it. Be- the beloved 
is also people dying of cancer. It is com people committing suicide, people that we love. It is having people doing things politically that we profoundly disagree with. It is children dying of hunger. And it's horrible. It's, it's understandable how one could be mad at God. I get that. But what are we going to do about that? Is, is not the best thing that we can do to wake up and to use our relationship with our experience as this fuel for this hot burning passionate fire. Compassion means with passion. How much passion can we bring to? How much heart passion? How much warrior-like compassion can we bring to being with difficult experience? There's many ways to talk about what really is the best way to integrate. I think it changes moment to moment, person to person, getting grounded, getting centered, being mindful, being compassionate. But Suzuki Roshi, my first meditation teacher, said the most important thing is finding the most important thing. Can we each ask what that is? Who, who am I? What's going on here? What's the most important thing? Or are we getting so reactive to our experience that we're not really asking the important question? Okay, so I'll open this up to discussion. To me, it appears in various forms. One way is this heart sense of subtle sense of being disconnected or living in dukkha. It can appear as this ground level of anxiety, and it can also appear as grief. Grief in the heart, anxiety downward, deep in the unconscious at, at the level of fear. Once again, to me, the, the practice here depends on being willing to identify and be with this fundamental tension between the stance of the ego structure that, in a way, is depending on this background sense of anxiety or grief in order to reify itself and the surrender into the totally groundless nature of our uh, true self, of true nature, of consciousness. Every moment in which you can rest in that expansiveness, it is almost like God is pouring some nectar into the grooves in your brain where suffering is arising. And every moment you're getting caught in the suffering, you're, you're believing the anxiety, you're believing the grief, then you're slightly deepening those grooves. So in some way, we could talk about all of this as preparation for dying, whether that's going to happen in, in a few months or in a few decades or whatever it's going to happen. My question is, how alive are you or am I willing to be right now? How much are we willing to surrender into that next moment? There's this wonderful Zen story that I'm sure that most of you have heard, but it's the, it's the picking the strawberry story where there's this guy, he's out in the country somewhere and he's being chased by a tiger and his only escape is to jump over the cliff and hold on to this root that's sticking out of the yeah, side of, yeah. the, of the cliff. The tiger's right on top growling and he 
looks down below and there's another tiger two down on the bottom waiting for him to fall. And he's holding on to this root and a mouse comes out and starts gnawing away at the root that he's holding on to. And as he's in this predicament, he notices that there's a wild strawberry growing and he picks the strawberry. And the end of the story is how sweet it tasted. And in a way, we all find ourselves in that circumstance. We're hanging on to the cliff. There's a tiger below. There's a tiger above. Somebody's gnawing away at our only support. And yet, we can taste the strawberry in this moment. The French root word for courage is core, which, which means heart. Courage isn't about being tough and strong. It's about trusting the heart trusting the surrender into the heart. So the ego is not the enemy, it's, it, and we can't destroy it or get rid of it, but we can s cease identifying with it and putting it in the primary position that it wants to be. So one of my meditation teachers, psychotherapist friend, I mean, not some, a guy I knew who was a psychotherapist and a meditation teacher said, you have to become somebody before you can become nobody. And it's very difficult to go deeply into spiritual work until you have a fairly healthy ego. The stuff we're talking about here is not going to put psychotherapists out of business. At the same time, having been around any number of people who are completely realized or at least very, very close to it, it's kind of hard for me to tell the difference, they have different personalities. They they react differently. They 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 play in the world differently. But the common denominator there, the common thread, is that they don't at all seem identified with the way they're different from somebody else. And the way I know that is because they kept seeing me completely free of the way I was identifying with my ego. I'd be sitting in front of Maharaji and I would be feeling uh, jealous because he was paying more attention to somebody else than me. Or I was feeling horny because the person sitting next to me was attractive. Or I was feeling very proud of myself because I just had a great meditation or you know, all those things. And he gave me ample feedback that I, he knew exactly the state of mind I was in moment to moment to moment, and yet those states of mind in no way affected his love for me. I remember one time, I've told this story a number of times lately for some reason, we were there, Ramdas was having a really bad day, he was mad at people, and he came over to Maharaji and said, Maharaji, I feel so impure. And Maharaji looked up his sleeve and said, I don't see any impurity, <laughs> right? And the impurity is in the ego structure, right? It's where we're identified with ego. So, yeah, the ego is still there. I mean, it helps you get a job and it helps you figure out what you're going to do with your day. But as practice deepens, can those same decisions, can the same activity be coming out of a deeper place than this conditioning? I mean, the ego... The ego is not a thing, it's a verb. It's, it's a result of certain conditioning, and it's particularly a result of trying to avoid our fear of death. This initial movement out of symbiotic relationship with mother into there's me and not me, and that's kind of scary, because uh, the not me might be dangerous. 
you have a good mother, you have a difficult mother, you have good parents, bad parents, whatever it is, we form uh, an ego structure. And yes, it is really crucial in how we approach spiritual practice. There was an article in the New York Times a few years ago by this fellow, I forget his name, who had been doing Vipassana meditation for really a long time, and he hit a wall. He just felt that his practice was stale. He couldn't go any further. So he very reluctantly decided to stop practicing. But he also thought that he would talk to a bunch of meditation teachers and ask what they thought was going on. And so he he contacted Jack Cornfield and Kathy Ingram and a bunch of other people who I can't remember who. And they all said the same thing, that in their experience, meditation practice wasn't enough. That there were certain parts of their interpersonal relationships, their work life, where all the being a monk in Southeast Asia or all the long retreats was not getting to that part of the ego structure. And that needed to go into therapy to begin to get a handle on that. When I was doing a lot of long retreats, at least in retrospect, I can say that there was a, an unexamined part of my ego structure that was evaluating my practice and telling me what I should do next. I should try harder. I should. There was the superego was really involved in my practice. Yet I didn't examine that voice. That voice was part of the realm of experience that was not examined. That was me. That was the meta voice that was helping me survive. It's just another, it's just another voice in the mind. The ego is not the enemy. It's not to be destroyed. It can't be destroyed. Two practices. One is working with the obstacles that the ego is throwing up. The other is forgetting about the obstacles and jumping in God's arms or jumping in the arms of the Dharma. Mm-hmm.